This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains references to suicide and trauma. Please listen with care and we'll link some support services to the full story page. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. Today we're bringing you a special episode from Guardian Australia's Chief Investigations Correspondent, Christopher Norse. He's been examining why people experiencing homelessness are dying prematurely, and why no government is even keeping track of these deaths. Here's Chris. This story starts in Granville, about 20 kilometres west of Sydney's CBD. I'm standing here outside what used to be a double-storey brick weatherboard house, but it doesn't look anything like that anymore. Now it's just a vacant block with a fence around it and a keep-out sign and a couple of cars parked inside. The neighbourhood here is quiet. It's leafy, it's sleepy. There's a school, a dental centre, a healthcare agency and a police station all in close proximity to this block. Back in 2015, this was a burnt-out home, an abandoned building that had been torn apart by fire. And one day, a woman arrived to pick through the rubbish on the ground floor when she made what was a pretty grim discovery. She found a a skeleton here amongst the rubbish. When police finally arrived here, they found in an upstairs bedroom a housing application form, uh, a plea for help from the housing system, uh, filled out in the name of Roger Davies. Davies was 42 years old when he died. He died while squatting in this burnt-out house as a rough sleeper. He was still dressed in a blue shirt and brown pants and still had a watch hanging from his wrist when police finally came. Uh, He'd been desperate, desperate for help and for stable housing, and it hadn't come. After his death, his body lay there for three years, three long years before anyone came and did anything about it. Roger is just one of the many preventable homelessness deaths that I've been investigating for the past few months. Today, the shocking indifference at the heart of a national crisis. The Australians who are dying three decades prematurely. It's Tuesday, the 6th of February. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So I've been researching desks like Roger Davies for almost 12 months now. And that's typically involved getting up, pouring over documents, looking for cases where rough sleepers or people who have been experiencing homelessness might have died, and then looking through the evidence in their cases and trying to understand whether there were systemic failings or things that could have been done to prevent their deaths. I've been speaking with family members all over the country to try and understand the people who have died, where they've come from, how they've ended up on the streets, and then ultimately the impact that the deaths have caused on families. One of the cases that we investigated really stuck in my mind, and that was the case of Pasquale Giorgio. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. I spoke to his niece, Olivia Centafanti, to get a better understanding of what went wrong in his case. So my uncle was always into something. He loved to laugh. He was a joker. Um, He taught me how to drive uh, my first car. And he was the youngest of a family of five, actually. So he was babied quite a lot by my grandma. Um, And being Italian, it's always, he was the only boy. So he was always baby and always taken care of from, you know, a young age. He would do anything for anyone. Anytime anyone asked him to do something, he, he'd be there to do it for you. Um, and it's just, you know, it was sad the way it all happened, to be honest. And, and tell me a little bit about when you first noticed the decline, I guess, of his, his mental health. So when his mum got cancer, this is when the mental um, stuff started happening. I think mm. he sort of got into a into his own mindset that if I don't save her, she's going to die. And if she dies, then I'm alone um, because she looked after him, you know. And then when she did actually die, um, his whole world collapsed, like collapsed around him. He couldn't cook, he couldn't clean, he couldn't wash clothes. Pasquale's family told me that he had fallen through the cracks of South Australia's mental health system. He was frequently coming out of mental health facilities without proper support. He'd go missing. His family would try to find out information about what treatment he was being provided and what support was available to him, and they were becoming really frustrated. They didn't listen. They didn't listen to us. And I think that is half of the problem. You can assess someone and they can tell you whatever it is you want to hear because my uncle was very good at telling you what you want to hear, very good with his mouth, very good at talking his way out of any situation. He was having um, nightmares essentially. He was picturing my grandma there and Apparently he could feel her pulling at his hair and, you know, pushing him around and stuff. And and then we had neighbours calling us saying, listen, your, your uncle's kind of 
out on the street, roaming around, screaming, yelling. Um, at one point, he was walking around naked. After maybe a month or two, maybe three of him sort of uh, terrorising the, the neighbours, um, the police took him to a, a 72-hour hold in, you know, mental facility. Um, and he was there. He then got assessed and he was essentially sent home after three days with um, antipsychotics to take. He'd been prescribed antipsychotics for chronic paranoid schizophrenia. And at this stage, he had become quite seriously unwell. Like, my mum was like, no, that's not, that's not how it is. That's not him at all. Listen, he's not going to take his medication. He's not been living in this house. Mm. He's completely destroyed the house. We showed them yeah. the pictures of the house and told them he can't go back there. It's literally, there's rats in there, okay? Mm. He could not physically live in it. Yeah. Um, and because we had no access to the house, we couldn't get it clean for him either. So Pasquale disappeared from his hometown of Adelaide and somehow managed to hitchhike his way all the way across the country to the Gold Coast in March 2016. In the Gold Coast, he had nowhere to stay. He was homeless. In the weeks leading up to his death, he had multiple interactions with the police over really quite benign things. You know, police were called to a McDonald's on Gold Coast Main Strip where Pasquale was pulling faces at people. And at that point, he even told police that he needed community assistance and that he was homeless. Police were unsure of where the local homeless shelters were. Instead, they directed him to seek help at the local courthouse and try and link up with a support service there. On the day that he died, this was April 2016. So Pasquale was approached by police and he exposed himself in public to two officers. Essentially, it was, he was resisting arrest. He'd been spoken to by the police up there three days prior to the actual incident day. Then they found him again after he'd walked into a shop and taken a bottle of water and the guy rang the police, the owner of the shop rang the police. The police came and they were kind of saying to him, you know, we told you three days ago you need to get out of here, you've got to stop harassing the people at the shops, you've got to stop harassing people. And, you know, my uncle, in a, a completely schizophrenic state, uh, you know, said, here, I'll give you something to look at, and he pulled his pants down and, you know, he had no underwear on. So... They tried to arrest him and they said it was resisting arrest. Olivia and her mother were shown a tape of Pasquale's arrest. I didn't see resisting arrest. I saw a man who was confused and didn't know what he was being arrested for. And then, you know, the, it just got physical after that mm. with him on the ground. Giorgio was struggling to breathe during the arrest. He was put in the back of a police van despite signs that he was suffering from what's known as positional asphyxia. Police saw that he was foaming at the mouth, but they didn't provide him with CPR. Instead, they left him in the back of that van and they waited for an ambulance to arrive, losing crucial minutes to save his life. 
Pasquale was particularly vulnerable to asphyxia, both due to his obesity and his pre-existing heart disease. Police also said that prior to arresting Pasquale, they didn't have time to check his record on their internal police databases. That record would have told them that Pasquale was both homeless and in the middle of a mental health crisis. What do you remember about those moments when you first learned that that he died? The first thing I think we thought was is how? How? How does someone die in police custody? Did they shoot him? No. Well, what, what happened? How does someone die just being arrested? I'm very angry at the fact that, you know, he was treated that way and it didn't have to be like that it was it was very forceful and he was a you know 50 something year old man who was starving and dying of thirst like he wouldn't have been a threat to them there was i don't believe there was any need to be that forceful not from the video i watched anyway yeah he was mouthy. Like I said to you before, he's good with his mouth. He'll try and talk his way out of anything. Yeah. But I don't believe having a mouth warrants a physical assault like that. Pasquale Giorgio was 54 when he died. And his story highlights a number of issues that I found again and again in my reporting. The first was his age. He was three decades younger than the standard life expectancy in Australia. His case also showed me that even a single period of homelessness is profoundly harmful to a person's physical and mental health. It also raised questions about police's role in all of this. What I found was that police are having really frequent interactions with rough sleepers, often on minor offences like public order breaches, things like public urination or drinking in public And in some of the cases, four cases, in fact, that we looked at, people were dying after these interactions with police. In Pasquale's case, the coroner's findings did not criticise police for their interactions with him in the days before his death. And they found the force used by the arresting officers was, quote, not excessive or gratuitous. What the coroner was critical of, however, was the delay in providing Pasquale with CPR and the officer's failure to recognise that, quote, his unconsciousness, inadequate breathing and foaming at the mouth were strong indicators of a man verging upon cardiac arrest. In a statement to The Guardian, police said that they worked regularly with the Department of Housing, the City of Gold Coast and other organisations to link rough sleepers up with support and try to get them into housing. And one expert I spoke to said that police are often put in an invidious position where they're almost expected to solve the homelessness crisis when, in fact, there's just nowhere for people to be directed to by police. I first stumbled into my own awareness of homeless deaths and wanting to research it uh, a couple of years before COVID when I was in the UK for a homelessness conference. Lisa Wood is a professor at the University of Notre Dame in Western Australia. 
someone was organising a vigil outside Number 10 Downing Street and I've never seen Number 10 Downing Street so I went along with a colleague and we just thought we would see what this vigil about uh, homeless deaths was about uh, because I'd never come across anything similar in Australia. And I guess that made me think about, well, what is happening in my own country around people experiencing homelessness and dying? Lisa Wood, with her team, has been attempting to count homelessness deaths in one city, the city of Perth. In Perth alone, Lisa Wood found that the median age at death was 50. That's just appalling, to be honest, because uh, anyone else in Australia, the average age of death now is um, tracking around 81. So it's, it's more than a three-decade gap. So that's what I find confronting. For me, this research is not just about the deaths. It's about the fact that it really is the litmus test of how poorly we're doing on reducing health and housing inequalities for this group. Her research in that city really inspired me to look at homelessness deaths on a national scale to see what was driving deaths and who was being killed. What we found was really stark. We found that the average age of death across the country for people experiencing homelessness was 44. And that's compared to the standard life expectancy for the general population, which is more than three decades longer. We found about 87% of those who died were men and 12% were women. First Nations Australians were vastly overrepresented and they made up about 20% of the deaths. So we also looked at what was driving these deaths and two key drivers stood out to us. Suicide and overdose were just major, major drivers of deaths and they're both what researchers describe as deaths of despair. Researchers call these deaths of despair because they say that they cannot be separated out from the context of homelessness. That is that people who are experiencing homelessness are frequently losing hope and are becoming desperate. If you think about you know, things like uh, PTSD, anxiety, you know, it's hard to imagine how you wouldn't have (laughs) sustained anxiety if if you're living in that kind of fight or flight mode for years on end. I think because homelessness and its mental health issues often clusters with uh, substance use and the substance use can be self-medicating for coping with trauma. In some cases, there were really clear systemic failings. In two cases that we looked at, homeless Indigenous men presented to hospital. In both cases, they directly linked their suicidal ideation to their homelessness. The medical notes show that one of them told staff, it is hard to find a reason to live when you have nowhere to live. Often the, whatever is written as the cause of death in the, in the context of someone who has experienced lifelong homelessness, trauma and adversity, the literal cause of death is is just a small part of the story that underlies why they've died so much earlier than the rest of us. It's important to remember that the 627 deaths that we looked at over a decade is nowhere near the true toll of homelessness deaths in this country. It's a vast, vast undercount. And that's because we only looked at deaths that were reported to the coroner. There are many, many deaths out there that are never reported to the coroner. But the problem is that no government in Australia bothers even to count the number of homelessness deaths that are occurring. That has left this crisis entirely invisible. The lack of 
any national or systematic government monitoring or attention to deaths amongst people who have been homeless is a sad indictment of our country. Uh, we, you know, we are a country that prides itself on many successes in public health and other areas of health and on, you know, the standard of living that we can provide to citizens. But I think when you discover, as I did a number of years ago, that there are there is a population group that is often invisible because of not having a house, not having an address. They're invisible in the deaths data because there's not a routine flag for homelessness. I do wonder at times whether it's one of those uncomfortable truths and therefore if the data was being collected and reported, I do wonder whether in the backs of some people's minds it, it's, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but I would hope that wouldn't be the case because we we are a democracy and we require demo- uh, transparency and truth-telling in all kinds of data and there's lots of health um, and mortality data that gets reported regularly that can make um, health services or governments feel uncomfortable, so I don't think we should shy away from this. Next, finding solutions for a broken system. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. One of the really big issues that we found in many of these deaths is that people who are sleeping rough or experiencing homelessness are really struggling to access healthcare and treatment. In a lot of the cases, there's a massive gap in healthcare provision that means that rough sleepers and and people experiencing homelessness are falling through the gaps. But in Melbourne, there's one man... My name's Nigel. I live in Melbourne. ...and a service offering a solution. I'm a peer worker slash community engagement worker at CoHealth in the CBD. And, um, yeah, I'm just about to turn 50. So I spoke to Nigel, who used to sleep rough, but now works with an organisation called CoHealth, which is a community health service for people facing disadvantage. Do you mind just telling me about, I guess, the events that led you into homelessness? What, Where were you and, and what happened that, that sort of triggered that period of homelessness? Well, my homelessness experience um, sort of goes back over 10 years, over a decade, I was living in Alice Springs and working as a chef there. I had six heart attack events over a period of like six to six weeks to a month. And 
yeah, the doctors were baffled why that happened, but they sent me to um, the Royal Adelaide Hospital to see what they could find out and investigate this problem. Because I was released in hospital, I didn't know anyone in Adelaide. I had no connections, no family, and um, I was obviously out of work at that time. And, yeah, that eventually led to me becoming homeless. And, um, yeah, my savings dried up pretty quickly. And getting out of hospital, having heart condition, I found myself addicted to opioids as well. Mm. My experience of sleeping rough only happened for a short time. Um, I was eventually found my way into um, a boarding house. It's, it was a long time ago, thank goodness, and I don't see myself as being homeless anymore. When, once I realised, even through education, that what I was experiencing was homelessness, yeah, I mean, I've been an advocate for homelessness issues in the past and, yeah, led me to becoming a peer worker. Can you maybe just describe in really kind of simple terms, I guess, what, what it is that you do and, and what a, a standard day might look like for you? Well, you come in um, into our service, uh, you come into the waiting room, I'll have a conversation with you, I find out what your needs are. We help people with their minor afflictions so they don't become chronic or major afflictions. So that's something we do really well here. And we give them access to nurses, dietitians, podiatrists, dentists, doctors, uh, we've got social workers here as well, and they do assessments of what people's needs are and how we could best assist them. So it might it might be something as simple as showers or um, laundry, but it might be something as need, needing um, help connecting with uh, a housing entry point or um, more advanced medical stuff. So Nigel's work is critical because... What we keep hearing over and over is that rough sleepers and people who are experiencing homelessness find it really hard to trust institutions, including people who are working in the medical institutions like hospitals and and healthcare centres. I think that having that lived experience allows me to empathise with the people I'm working for and um, I can relate to them and also I've had similar experiences, if not the same experiences as a lot of the people we're helping. It it might not help, like, straight away. Um, Some people come in, they're quite heightened or agitated, and the first conversation might not be the most productive, but um, if they um, continue to come and use the service, then the ability to have conversations is always there, and over time... Usually it does happen over time, I have to say that. We um, establish a relationship and we establish some connection and we're able to work on stuff that they want to work on. It might take a while because trust is pretty hard with a lot of homeless people because of the distrust of systems. And with us, it's uh, like distrust of the medical institution, or it can be. Um, but that's what a peer worker does. They break down those barriers and tries to start a conversation and regains the trust of the people we're working with. So, yeah. But from many of the conversations that I've had, it's clear that while there are some support services out there, they are hugely oversubscribed and unable to meet the full level of demand. Shelters are also overrun and there's just not a lot of places for people to go when they're desperate and have no support systems. 
is taking people years and years to get into any sort of housing. Roger Davies, who we spoke about at the very start of this episode, is a shocking example of this. I travelled to Sydney and saw the documents in his court file for myself. I've just come out of the coronial building here in Lidcombe, Sydney, after looking at uh, documents that they pulled out of the archives on the death of Roger Davies. They included a application for housing that he'd made before his death. Uh, it was in his own handwriting. It was quite eerie seeing the things that he was writing uh, just before he died. He had clearly been trying to get housing for a long, long time uh, without success. Uh, he complained of being really physically unwell, uh, being unable to walk, uh, suffering from a lot of mental health issues, contemplating suicide. Um, but maybe most striking of all was that he said repeatedly that he wasn't safe where he was, that he'd been getting bashed and robbed. And that he really was quite desperate to get into housing, some form of housing. If you don't have safe, stable housing, it's very hard to have good health. And if you don't have safe, stable housing and good health, it it undermines your life expectancy. So it's a really complex problem to solve. And, you know, there's no easy fix other than to really invest in housing, in emergency and affordable housing, and to provide wraparound support services for people once they're in housing. People might say, oh, that person didn't literally die of homelessness. And I would always say, no, they didn't, but there's a whole range of factors uh, that impacted on their health and their opportunity to live a long and healthy life because they didn't have a house and because they didn't have stable housing and because they didn't have access to um, the standard of living and the services that that I might have. So I think um, if we're going to tackle this, it's it's going to have to be a interconnected solution as well. I can't help but think that if a lot of these victims had had a roof over their head and support services provided to them, that they would still be alive or at least would have lived to somewhere closer to the standard life expectancy in Australia. So... Housing First, which is the kind of go-to model um, around the world for homelessness, the the premise of that is that you house people really rapidly and then you put in place the supports they need. So you don't say you have to get off substances or deal with your court debts or whatever it is first. You house people and then you can support their health. Um, And we see that a lot with homeless healthcare, that it's once people are stably housed that they can start to stabilise their diabetes or address an addiction issue or actually get to their medical appointments for a mental health care plan or, or so on. We're facing a situation now where the housing crisis is getting worse, where the level of unmet demand among rough sleepers for support services and housing is going through the roof. 
there are just so many ways in which the systems are breaking down and failing people who are just incredibly, incredibly vulnerable and who are living lives that we can't even imagine. And if we don't act now in some way to start providing housing through a housing first model, then we're just going to keep seeing these deaths over and over. And I think that that should be enough to shock governments into action. But also what's become apparent to me during this investigation is just how little Australia as a society really cares about people who are experiencing homelessness. You know, there's this real apathy towards what happens to people who are extraordinarily vulnerable in our society. And I think that we need to find a way to reverse that if we're really going to help people who are sleeping rough and stop them dying in shocking and disturbing circumstances, I think we need to find a way for society to care again. There was a point last year, I recall, when I looked at the list of people who had died that year so far and I saw that uh, many of them were younger than me. Uh, Some of them were people whose names I knew from case studies we'd been writing for services we evaluate. Uh, a few of them were people I had met when I was out in the street uh, with Homeless Healthcare Street Outreach Nurse. And I particularly think about the fact that, um, you know, if if I was dying, I would have a, a huge network of family and friends supporting me and I would be connected to services. And I look at how lonely and isolated some of these deaths are and uh Just a couple of weeks ago, I went with um, a street outreach nurse to uh, scatter some ashes in the ocean of uh, a patient she had supported through a terminal cancer, and uh, he had no family, So, but he'd always wanted to go to the beach before he died, but he wasn't well enough, and so there was no funeral, uh, there was no people to come along, so... We took him to the beach and um, wished him peace, but it just doesn't seem right that there are people who who have these really hard lives and then they, they leave this world too young and there are so few people left who even know about that or, or, or care. That was Lisa Wood, a professor with Notre Dame University in Western Australia. Thank you also to Nigel Pernu and Olivia Centafanti for their time. You can find more details of this investigation named Out in the Cold on theguardian.com. And we've linked to the series on the full story page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by me, Chris Norse, Karishma Luthria and Daniel Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer of Full Story is Miles Martignoni. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review. Jane Lee will be back in your feeds tomorrow.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.